Okay, so um, we're ready for the Bible reading. It's on page 1024. So, yep, and it's uh, Luke 1, verse 5 to 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of God and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Thank you. Uh, keep that passage open and we're going to have a, a quick look at it today before we hear more from Rob and Arabelle and uh, what's been happening for the horns, which is our sort of uh, priority really today. Um, uh, it's great to have um, Rob and Arabelle back and after church today we'll be having lunch if you got the email during the week, you might think, okay, we're heading down to the beach. It looks really nice out there now, but I'm told reliably it's going to rain just right at the time when we go to the beach. So instead of going to the beach, if you would like to have lunch with us, we'll be in the rectory next door. Um, and if you're a person that's maybe only just hearing about um, uh, what's been going on in Austria now in the last little while in our prayers, and you think, oh, that, that lunch probably isn't for me, I want to say, no, it is. Come and meet Rob and Arabella as we say goodbye to them, even. And um, uh, come and have lunch with us. We'd love to have you along. 
today. So if you can do lunch, come back to the rectory after morning tea and we'll, uh, that'll be great. Uh, also, just another thing on that, on Monday night uh, in the hall at 7.30, we'll be having a longer sort of Q&A session and report from Rob about what's been happening in, in Austria. Uh, so uh, if you're in a home group, you might want to encourage your home group to meet on Monday night instead of whatever night you meet. <coughs> and in the hall, instead of wherever you normally meet, come along. That would be a good thing to do. Uh, so uh, up to you, Monday night at 7.30. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful and strange story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and this child. Uh, Father, we pray that you would teach us, as we have learnt last week, the certainty of the things we're taught, um, that we might have a firmer faith in you and bring great blessing to others too. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week I introduced you to a, a, a real feast of science fiction, a show on Netflix called Stranger Things. That's the poster. It's a story that suggests that below our world lies another world, and this world is exactly the same as our world, and it is in fact our world, but a part of our world normally inaccessible, full of darker and stranger things. And in this show, like all science fiction, two worlds connect up. It's kind of like a gateway. And the world of stranger things bubbles up into our world of lovelier, nicer, better things with horrifying consequence. It bubbles up from a place that the kids, the main characters of stranger things, call the upside down. The upside down. You can tell we're in the world of science fiction. We know that science fiction because reality is actually the other way up. What I mean is our world is actually full of dark and strange things. Um, Our world is not all sunny days and roses. Our world is troubled. It certainly has sunny days, certainly has roses, uh, but it's also a world full of darker, stranger things, folly, sadness, sickness, and shadowed by sin and death. That's reality. In fact, Stranger Things knows that because the real gateways for the dark things to enter the world of small-town America uh, is not really the kind of scientific facility, the science fictiony thing, but the two main child characters who've experienced more suffering than children should. They, in fact, know the darker things. They know the stranger things. And now you realise we're not in science fiction at all. We're in the lives of people like us. For our world lives under something of a strange shadow. But what if that dark news was relieved by the fact that there is an upside down? There is another world, in fact not another world, but our world, which is full of different things, of better things of goodness and justice and freedom and mercy, and it's actually bubbling up into our world. That would be amazing news, wouldn't it? And this upside down actually really has the promise to put our world right side up. What if that story was written, not just um, kind of invented, what if it wasn't science fiction, but it was recorded history written as certain teaching in something called the Gospel of Luke? which we have in front of us. That would be great news. Well, today we learn that God's favour 
is breaking into our world. Dave, I wonder if I can get you just to slide the door shut because the traffic's particularly loud this morning. Uh, Can you, uh, yes, as I said, we know that God's favour is breaking into our world. That's big news. And we learnt that Luke knows it's happening around the coming of Jesus. He writes his gospel to Theophilus, who's a new believer, um, who is very excited to come to Christ, we assume, but not entirely persuaded of everything. And he writes it, chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, to teach Theophilus of the certainty of the things he's been taught. Uh, And today, in this second instalment of Luke, we meet a very strange story. We see why Theophilus would have needed to be encouraged in the certainty of the things he's been taught, because some of it just looks actually very strange. doesn't look like certain things at all. It looks like stranger things. And uh, in today's instalment, we meet a nearly pensioned-off high priest and his long-suffering wife. They receive a child, and this child is really not just for them, but for the whole nation, bringing the favour of God. So we're going to look at the righteous sufferers, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the preparation of a people, Israel, And what do we need to know about God's favour then and now? Firstly, righteous sufferers. We meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. As I said, a nearly pensioned off high priest, a delightful but um, disappointed wife, Elizabeth. And we we know that they are both righteous and suffering. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Yep, we discover what we often discover, that bad things do happen to God's people. He's a faithful high priest. Elizabeth is, from everything I can see, just a delight. But they both wear what was then the great cultural indignity of childlessness, which remains today, if not a cultural indignity, I hope not, still a very sharp grief for many. But I want you to note that what this passage screams at us is that Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous. Uh, Now, be careful here. I don't mean they're good. I mean they know God. I mean, they are good. In fact, you're told they're good. I mean, in relative terms, if you put me next to Zechariah or Elizabeth, you'd want to have lunch with Zechariah and Elizabeth and not me. You know, they're relatively gooder than me. But that's not what righteous really means in the Bible. Um, You'll notice that they observe all the Lord's decrees and commands blamelessly. One of those decrees Zechariah is observing in this story when he goes into the temple to offer incense before the offering. Now, what's that all about? Well, one of the Lord's commands, right at the heart of the Lord's commands in Leviticus, was take an animal, go and sacrifice it for your sins. So we know that, in fact, if you're going to follow the Lord's commands and decrees, those very commands and decrees will tell you, you're not right with me. An atonement must be made to breach the difference between you and me. And Zechariah is in the process of doing that, of being part of that decree, uh, when we're told he's blameless and righteous. There's no one righteous but God, but... 
you can be made righteous by God. And then you can live in a manner that's consistent with that righteousness. That's what we find in Zechariah and Elizabeth. They do trust God now. They worship him. They lead others in worshipping. They're, they're stand-up people. And they've done this through many years of suffering. And though they are people of grace who know the undeserved kindness of God, Elizabeth's experience is, in her own words, in the last verse of the passage, one of disgrace. Here are two righteous people of grace who live under a shadow of disgrace. And of course, the guts of this story is wonderfully, Zechariah goes in to the place of grace, the temple of God, and finds on top of the grace he already lives in, God adds a unique and personal and singular grace to him and Elizabeth. He says, you'll have a kid. His name will be John. Wonderful news for them. Zechariah and Elizabeth's world must feel like what was upside down is now turning kind of right side up. But it's much bigger than Zechariah and Elizabeth. This special sign is not just given to them. It's given through them to the whole nation for their kind of um, personal alleviation of righteous suffering uh, is actually news for the preparation of all of God's people. We see that in verse 12. The angel said to Zechariah, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his earth. His birth. Do you see that? Not just for you, but for many. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's born. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Clearly this kid is bigger than this family. He's for the nation. He will become John the Baptist. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are in God's grace but under cultural disgrace, find that turned around because God gives them a very special act of grace. They get a child. And so we have the story in which a father receives a son, a mother receives a son. But we realise, no, no, this, this son is more than that. Not only is the healing of this family brought about, but they become a sign. In fact, they become the origin of, of a preacher who will go to all of Israel and preach a repentance, a, 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 a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins so that Israel will turn. And what will happen when Israel turns right side up? Well, we're told in the spirit of Elijah the hearts of parents will be turned to their children and children to their parents. So not only is this family of Zechariah and Elizabeth healed, but this child will become part of the healing of the whole nation. It's always a really good sign of the gospel and the presence of God when a son goes home and says, I love you, Dad. Because I've met a lot of sons. And you know, you don't hear it that often. It's a real sign of the gospel that children respond to their parents. They care for them and love them. They will um, respect them. 
But it's bigger than that even. And that happened, by the way. Thousands of people came out of Jerusalem. They poured out in the desert. They came to John's preaching. They heard that they needed to turn their hearts around. And they did. And they kind of jumped in the water and they were baptised and half drowned in the name of the Lord and went back and said, I love you, Dad, and I love you, Mum. And now we're not going to walk away from the Lord. That happened. But it's bigger than that because that was a sign that Israel, God's child, needed to turn around. Israel needed to come back to its father, Yahweh. How do I know all this? Because everything it says about John, he won't take wine, he'll go in the spirit of Elijah, except he'll turn the hearts of parents to their kids and kids to their parents. Sounds like something I've heard before. And if you've read the Old Testament, and if you've been so bold as to read to the last page of the Old Testament, and not many make it, I grant you, you'll hear these words. These words which echo in the ears of any Israelite who knows their Bible and which hang over 400 years of unspoken, quiet history between these words and the arrival of Jesus. It's the last words the prophet Malachi spoke. And they were, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And for 400 years nothing happened and the land looked like it was under a curse. The Greeks ruled and then the Romans ruled and people did whatever they want and they neglected the Lord. And then finally this kid grew up and he drank like a teetotaler and he ate grasshoppers and he took himself off to the desert and he dressed like a hobo or a prophet like Elijah, and he preached repentance, and people came out and turned their hearts towards the Lord and one another. It's amazing. They were baptized in the Jordan by him, and the favor of God flowed. Now, Zechariah can scarcely believe this, as we'll see next week, but he um, returns to Elizabeth, who becomes pregnant. And she declares, verse 25, her disgrace removed. She said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he's shown his favour and taken away my disgrace from among the people. Well, we have a shorter time for reflection today because we want to spend good time with Rob and Arabelle in a moment. But let's just take a minute thinking about what we can learn about the favour of God. That's what Elizabeth declares The Lord has shown his favour. Now, it's not just Elizabeth. If you're going to read the Gospel of Luke, you need to hear that word favour. Because an amazing thing happens when after John preaches and the favour of the Lord becomes clear on Israel through his preaching, Jesus, his cousin, steps up. And he arrives at a synagogue in Capernaum and they throw him the reading for the day. And he preaches his first sermon. Can you imagine what it would have been to be there? And do you know what the text was? It was this from Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, to set the captive free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. 
That's, that's, the, that's the Bible passage Jesus read, his first kind of public reading of Scripture. And then he preached his first sermon, which was a cracker because it was one sentence long, and said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Drop the mic. The Lord's favour has come. Amazing. What do we need to know about the Lord's favour? Sounds like Luke wants us to know about the Lord's favour. We know one thing about it then and we know one thing about it now. Firstly, thinking about the favour of the Lord on Zechariah and Elizabeth, there's something very obvious to learn. And that is, you can see straight away that you can't always tell God's favour from your circumstance. Let me say that again. You can't always tell God's favour from your circumstance. Our culture makes a very big and very common mistake. It believes that your circumstance reveals something very deep about you and very deep about God, if it believes in God. It says what your life is like tells you what you're like, and what's happening in your life tells you something about your relationship with God. Why does it think this? Well, it thinks this because it's the result of a world that believes people basically get what they work for. That you get what you deserve, you get out what you put in, so if you're getting out tough stuff, there's, something, there's a tough truth to learn about yourself. Right? It's that view of the world. And there's just enough in our work life and stuff to make us think that might be true, but it's utterly untrue in the big picture. If you're suffering, therefore, it's probably because you're bad or foolish or you lack the means to solve it or you didn't work hard enough early enough to get enough money to get the best care you could get. And then if you can't stomach this view of yourself, and most people can't, then you go, well, it wasn't really me, it's just that God is actually not very nice and he doesn't do nice things. That's, that's the kind of view of a culture that says... What your circumstances are like is a mirror to who you are like and what God is like. And the Bible says no. No. I mean, it might be. There might be something in your life that is absolutely a blessing of God and tells you everything about God. It might be. That was true for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They got a child, turned out, showed that the Lord was really favourable to them. But I've got six of them and I'm still not sure. Like, you can't, you can't, it's just not how you could read life. The Bible says, no, that thinking's upside down. It says, God is good and you are loved, and yet you might still experience bad things and suffer. It's clear from Zechariah and Elizabeth. Were they people of disgrace? Only culturally. Were they people of disgrace before God? Not at all. We're told. It's clear. It's so clear. Verse 6. They were righteous and blameless. They were in God's grace all the time. Always in God's favour and received an extra favour of a child in a sunny season in the end of their life. This breaks the back of that assumption that our life reflects who we are or who God is to us. This seems very important to me for Rob and Arabelle at the moment as they come back. As you're about to hear... They're back, they're back in order to, you know, with their heart turned to their parents so that they can look after Rob's mum. Uh, for care of relatives is commended in the scripture and whoever does not care for a relative has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But this is an unhappy happy circumstance. You know, Rob's dad died recently and they're leaving a fragile church and a small student ministry in Austria. It doesn't look good. 
doesn't look good, but it is. And circumstance is no reliable guide to the Lord's favour. And that's true for you too. I don't know what your life's like at the moment, but I know a few of you, and I know that there's some tough stories here. And if you're tempted to think that your life tells a dismal story of either you or God, well, I want to say, think twice about that conclusion. Because your affliction is no evidence that you are not blessed by God and his favour does not shine upon you. That's what we learned from God's favour then. What about now? Well, what we know now is there's a place where you can always tell God's favour from. You can tell how God feels about you. You can work out how the Lord smiles upon you. And that is in the face of grace. After John came, Jesus came. And Jesus showed that God's favour wasn't just for Elizabeth, and it wasn't even just for Israel, but is for people of all nations down through the age. For anyone who knows they need better things than we can ever manage to work up for ourselves, and for anyone who will humble himself before God, repent of their sin towards him, and trust his saving son, for anyone who will do that, for anyone who will humble themselves like that, the year of the Lord's favour has arrived. So you can't know God's favour from your circumstance, but you can know it from the grace of Jesus Christ. Because he said when we were poor and captive, when we were blind to God and oppressed by sin, the the year of the Lord's favour had come. So can I urge you, a bit like John, to consider whether you need to turn your heart back to God. Or whether I can commend you, like Elizabeth and Zechariah, to say you don't need to turn your heart back to God, but you need to turn your view of things upside down and remember that your present suffering is no evidence that you are not loved by God and hear that you are favoured, deeply favoured. And can I say to you that when Jesus came in this little prefigurement in his cousin John, such good news was bubbling up into the world. And our world for all its sunny days is shadowed by sin and death and folly and sickness. And we need this news like nothing else. And can I say to you, happy Christmas. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you so much for our Lord, your King whom you've installed and you revealed in these strange ways so long ago now. Yet these strange things are certain things, seen by many, carefully accounted for by Luke, and delivered to us, the friends of God, that we might believe. And so, Father, by a great work of your Spirit, grow that in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.